Welcome to another episode of Brains Matter. And today we have Dr. Jürgen Nodelseder once again. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for the invitation. Well, last time we spoke about gamma ray astronomy, some uh, uh, really interesting facts that you told us there today. It's going to be a little bit different. So you've got a background as an astrophysicist, as a scientist doing a lot of research work. You also have a, a keen interest on the environment and astronomical research, isn't that? So can you give us a little bit about the background of that? So firstly, what prompted you to start looking at that? And secondly, what what you're looking at right now? Yeah. Uh, in fact, if you follow a bit the what's going on in astronomic literature, you may have recognized that there are some articles around about the carbon footprint of astronomy, of uh, communities, uh, of different labs, and so on. So I think there's a general movement in the astronomical community uh, being also concerned about uh, their environmental footprint. And uh, it's maybe it's maybe tied to the fact that, I mean, for me, astronomy is part of nature. I mean, it's, uh, uh, of course, not the nature on Earth, but the nature of, of the universe. And 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 also it's, uh, we all know how, how, uh, how rare life is in the universe, at least so far. We haven't found any place, any other place where life exists. We know over 5,000 planets today, exoplanets. From no planet, we have any clue that there's life on this planet. And at least for those planets we explored in the solar system or their moons, we haven't seen any evidence for life either. So it's a very rare thing. And, and I think we all have, we all astronomers have the feeling that we really have to protect the life. And if you read IPCC reports or, or other reports, I mean, you really see all the threats uh, on, 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 on life on Earth. <laughs> And this, of course, makes you think. And 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 so the question we had in Toulouse, uh, uh, at our lab at IRAP, was also to understand: okay, what what's our share? What what what's our footprint? And and uh, one obvious thing that was identified very very soon was, for example, the professional traveling, which is done of course a lot by plane you know i mean when when you do astronomy uh, you sit a lot on planes uh, it uh, maybe because you go to conferences all over the place uh, all over the world i mean uh, uh, traveling eventually very far for maybe giving a, a 10 minutes speak on the other side of the planet but also, I mean, if, if you work on projects, and, and I worked a lot on, 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 on projects, I mean, on, on basically new instrumentation, like making satellites, but also if you make a, a ground-based observatory, it takes you years, or very often decades, and I don't know how many meetings uh, to, to get these projects, uh, to put these projects in place. So it also involves a lot of traveling. So it, Traveling was uh, uh, was uh, identified as a uh, important contributor to our carbon footprint, but we at IRAP had the ambition to try to get a full picture, right? To look at all different aspects of astronomy, and so also explore other things that we need and, and, and we do in our daily life, 
in uh, astronomers' life uh, that eventually have a carbon footprint. How did you estimate the carbon footprint of, of your particular lab? So, so it's very important if you do this exercise that, that you do it right. And by doing it right, I mean that you follow a, a, a recognized standard. So what we did in our lab, uh, we decided first to take a, a, a training uh, on how you do a carbon footprint estimate uh, correctly. And, and we followed the, and we are a lab in, in France, so we followed the French standard, which is called the Bilan Carbon. Uh, and, and this was uh, extremely interesting uh, because it answers all the questions that you typically hear, what, uh, how should I, I mean, what do I need to take into account when I make an assessment? How should I do the calculation and so on? How should I attribute some carbon footprint to my lab if it's shared among different institutes and, and stuff like that? So we got answers to all these questions and and then we were a pretty uh, pretty uh, easy basically of of doing this kind of uh, exercise now if you do that the first thing you do is you draw basically a map flux map what's going in your activity or in your lab and what's going out of it and 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 so just to define basically the boundary of your system and then you need two things, in fact. Then you need what's called activity data. They say basically how much. How much do you fly? How much energy do you use? How much heating energy do you use? And so on, of course. And then you need emission factors, which tell you how much CO2 per activity, per amount of activity. So how much tons of CO2 per kilometer of uh, flying or whatever, or, or, or per kilowatt hour of electricity spent. So, and, and collecting all this data, this was in fact the most time consuming part because I mean, it's not always, I mean, it's not easy to get this data. I mean, sometimes somebody has an electricity bill and you can get these numbers, uh, but sometimes it's not so obvious. So some, some data we get by, by using a poll, by asking just people, for example, how do you come to the lab? Do you need, do you ride a bicycle? Do you go by public transport? Do you have a car and so on? So, so we collected all the data and then we were basically done. But then there was one question, what to do with our observatories? Because we use in our daily life, a lot of data coming from observatories, from satellites, but also from observatories on the ground. And, and formally, I mean, we are also somehow responsible for these uh, uh, emissions because, I mean, without astronomers, these observatories won't exist. Sometimes we build them, sometimes we, we operate them. So it's obviously that we have uh, to take this into account. And then we started a work on basically uh, estimating the uh, environmental footprint of the carbon footprint specifically of the observatories. And this was never done before. And what we use there, uh, I mean, of course, you, you have not very detailed access to information about these observatories, but what you can always do, and that works in fact quite nice, is use what used uh, is used what what's called a monetary method. And you in the monetary method you relate in fact the carbon footprint to the cost of something. 
and, uh, and, and, and you, you can find pretty nice correlations between carbon footprint of course. So, so of course it depends a bit on, on what you buy and, and there are things that you buy that will have a larger carbon footprint for the same amount of money than other ones. But if you define by sector of activity, you get a pretty good first order estimate. So we use this method for, uh, for uh, space missions. So we take the cost of the mission or ground-based observatory. So we take the cost of the observatory and the cost of operations. And for space missions, we did even the second thing. We said, okay, maybe it also scales with the, uh, the weight of, of the telescope, of the satellite that goes up. So uh, we, we used a relation between the satellite mass and, and the carbon footprint. And it turned out that the result was very close, in fact, to, to the estimate based on, on the mission cost, which shows, in fact, at the end, the, it was a quite robust estimate that we made. And the amazing outcome of this exercise was that the, uh, the use of the observer observatories, of the data from these observatories, was the biggest contributor to the carbon footprint of, of an astronomer in our lab, but also general of the, of the community. It's really the biggest thing. Of course, flying is a big thing, but observatories is an even bigger thing. I, I read an article recently about the computational power required to run AI like ChatGPT, which is all in the news lately and so on. That's a huge amount of computational power. Obviously, there's a lot of... Um, computational power required for a lot of astronomical calculations such as the square kilometre array, which is the, the project that's being done in Australia and South Africa. What can we do to continue doing great research, but yet keep our, our eye on the carbon footprint and uh, the environmental concerns in check? Yeah, that's in fact, a, that's a tough question, a challenging question, but I, I think also an interesting question because I mean, that's exactly what we have to do. How can we, how can we invent a, a, a research of the 21st century that is compliant with the planetary boundaries? So I think, I mean, I, I mentioned, for example, I mean, our professional traveling there. Everybody knows we, we have a huge carbon footprint due to traveling. And we just have seen in, in, 20, uh, in 2020, during the COVID lockdowns, that we can still do quite good research without traveling so much around. Uh, so, I mean, we use a lot of Zoom now, we do <laughs> as we do now today. And, mm -hmm. and, and you can have conferences on Zoom. And, and I mean, you, you shouldn't organize them like a normal conference. You should organize them differently. But if it's done uh, appropriately, it can be quite interesting. I recently did a, a, a conference uh, uh, with astronomers for planet Earth. I don't know if you heard about this. It's a grassroots uh, organization. It has now more than 1,600 astronomers on board that are specifically uh, concerned about the environmental questions. And they really thought about how can you do a good online conference? And, and this was really... Uh, a, a very a very interactive event it was pre-recorded talks. Uh, we used Gavatown for for then the interactive part, and 
I, I think I, have, I had more discussions in this kind of event, like in an in-person conference, which I have attended in the past, where, where people very often come with their laptops, do their emails on the laptops and barely listen to the talks. And, and for that, they fly around the planet. So I think there are really, there's a really a big potential uh, on the flying part. You can do a lot of good science without flying so much. And there was recently a, a paper about uh, academics in France and, and the, the, the field, the scientific field that is flying the most, at least in France, is astronomy. Astronomers really fly a lot and very often to places where there's no astronomy at all, uh, but the conferences are organized all, very often at, at, at very nice places. So this is the first part. Uh, as I mentioned before, I mean, the observatories is an important fraction of the footprint. Now, I think you, I challenge you to find an astronomer who will not tell you that there are huge amounts of archival data around that have not yet been explored. We all know this and we have to be frank about that. And that's actually what I'm doing now since a couple of years uh, with students here. I'm going back to my, my first love, which is the Comtel telescope, which mm -hmm. I, I worked on when I was a student and later on in my PhD thesis. And uh, the interesting thing is why go back to these old data? It's now more than 30 years old. It's funny because the students that work on this data, they were not born when the data they're taking. <laughs> and they like this aspect very much because that it, it's, that you can really get something out of the data. And the reason why you can get something out of the data is that the field has quite progressed since the time. Because we had more gamma ray satellites, uh, for example, the Fermi satellite from, from NASA, which observes at higher energies, but has revealed a lot of new information about gamma rays. And also ground-based uh, gamma ray telescopes like HESS or MAGIC or Veritas, they have revealed a lot of new information. And now we can take this, this current view of our universe at high energies and go back to the old data and, and, uh, and, and look if we cannot find something interesting. And I really, I mean, I'm currently working on something. I will not unveil what it is, but it will be a big shot. And, and there's really quite pretty interesting stuff uh, coming out of, of these data. And, and I think in every field you can, still go back to this data and really exploit them as good as you can. And there's another phenomenon that is very interesting to observe. When you work on instruments, you always think about how can I increase my user community? So in fact, there's a, there, there's a competition of instruments for getting users. If you are in that situation, maybe there are too many instruments if there are not enough users for your instrument. And there's in fact somebody that, that wrote this up a couple of years ago in an article that, 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 that showed that, that we are moving into a system where there are not enough astronomers compared to the number of observatories, which again, it's maybe not the most optimistic thing to do. And, and when you look, I mean, of course you, you do projects in collaboration but it's a lot about competition. Uh, now in, in Europe, we build the ELT, the extremely large telescope, will be the biggest optical telescope in the world. 
And the US also wants to build two ELTs. They call it GMT and TMT. But at the end, I mean, if if you really believe that we are there to, to make progress in the science and we are there for humanity, you don't have to duplicate stuff. You, mm. you don't have to do the same thing twice, three times, four times, just to be the first. You just need one of them. And there are other examples like sending two or three space missions to planet Venus at about the same time. What, what's the point? I mean, cannot you do this more efficiently? And so, I mean, by increasing cooperation and reducing competition uh, is, is an important factor also to gain on all sides, not only on the footprint side, but also on interaction side and, and and, and the human aspect of science and, and having also less pressure to rush always from one thing to the next and to publish, to publish and to publish and so on. So this also echoes a, a bit what is known through the slow science movement who advocates to slowing down and, and really going into depth and, and really trying to understand things instead of just rushing, rushing through as we do it today. And, and the third aspect is that I think we have to also invest money into decarbonization. I mean, we, uh, a lot of the footprint comes from the energy use of the observatories, for example. And this is true for the ground-based, but also for the space-based. You need antenna to collect the data, you need data centers, just mentioned that chat GPD and of course, uh, SKA, which also have, will have a, a, a tremendous carbon footprint in terms of computing. And, and, and so you have to decarbonize this aspect, going to renewable energy and so on. And this means just investment. I mean, uh, another aspect is that we need, uh, that the funding agencies need to put more money into decarbonization. I mean, uh, the observatories, they uh, consume a lot of energy the ground-based observatories, but also the space-based observatories for ground stations and data processing and so on. You just mentioned SKA that will use a lot of energy uh, in computing. And today, you won't get any money from a funding agency uh, to decarbonize the energy uh, use of, of the infrastructure. They always want to invest money to build new stuff, but not to decarbonize. So, so this has to change tomorrow. I mean, they have also to invest money into decarbonization, which means that less money is available to build new stuff. But as I outlined before, I mean, that's maybe not a so, so bad thing uh, because we have already a lot of observatories and we have a lot of data we can still work with. So they say that um, science knows no political boundaries, but um, it, it sounds like we still need a, a lot more collaboration to happen there to, to get us to where we really want to go to. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that makes you think about what's the role of science? Is it really uh, for making advancing humanity or is it more to making advancing one nation against another? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Very often it's used like that. Uh, think about the, the lunar space race. The Cold War. Exactly, and it, it was, I mean, formerly it was planetary science. All, all the, the space race was planetary science. It was going to the moon, uh, going to Mars, going to Venus, 
uh, when you look, I mean, at the history, all these are planetary missions. So you can say, I mean, of course, it was done for science, but I mean, that was not the initial purpose. And, right. and, and, and sometimes you can even question, I mean, what's really the initial purpose uh, of the science we are doing? I mean, is it really what we pretended is? Uh, mm -hmm. Or is it is it there for for other reasons? I just want to finish up on uh, another aspect of what you're doing. You, you you've got a bit of a um, political spin now as well, don't you? Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, if you if you think about all these things, I mean, you can think about them professionally, but at some point also, you you live in in some town there. You have an environment, and you think why not not uh, anything is happening in terms of whatever, energy transition, uh, having less cars, uh, having more bicycles and so on. So I also got in, involved uh, politically, uh, just at a very local level and, and just with the aim to, to get things moving. I mean, uh, really the aim is just that we make also a transition there and the environmental questions uh, become part of our daily uh, life there. And it's interesting because you see, of course, uh, all these uh, structures that, that are in place and that try to resist. Uh, I'm not so optimistic that politics will solve it from what I see now from inside, which is also understandable to some, uh, to some uh, in some place, because I mean, politicians are just uh, elected in by people and and so if the people don't move the politicians uh, even move less uh, than the people because they are more conservative they want to be re-elected the next time so it, it's it's really tough to get things moved so sometimes you will have little wins and sometimes you have uh, <laughs> big losers but i still don't give up and i continue to, to push also there my my environmental convictions and to try to to change things it, it's always the little changes that make the big change in the end, isn't it? Anything we can do to, to help? I think the, the biggest change is, uh, I mean, the biggest, the, uh, the biggest lever arm is maybe exactly what we are doing now. Speak to people. Try mm -hmm. to, to convey ideas to people and, 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 and bring people on board and convince them because i mean that's i think how how you can create a dynamics i would say not so much rely on others just try to shake it up yourself with whatever means you have whatever lever arms you have at your disposal but just let's talk about it and 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 uh, exchange these ideas and, and show that you're not alone on on these kind of questions and that's why I'm very happy that we have also a very good dynamics here at our lab, but also at a local level. And and also like at a level, like I mentioned, astronomers from planet Earth now, more than 1,600 astronomers already concerned about these issues. And that's good to feel part, to be part of a community and to do things together. On that note, uh, Dr. Jürgen Nodelsetter, thank you very much from the universe to us down here on Earth. Thanks for talking to us about the environmental impact of what we do, even in the name of science. Yeah, well, thank you very much again for the invitation. It was really a pleasure to talk to you.
Thanks for listening to the show. You can check out the Brains Matter website at www.brainsmatter.com and you can find all the other episodes of the show there. There's also other information on the site, such as guests who've been on the show and subscription details. You can also find Brains Matter on YouTube, so make sure you like and subscribe if you're a YouTube listener. If you want to support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash brainsmatter and signing up to one of the options there. Or you can donate either once off or regularly via PayPal. All you need to do is click on one of the PayPal donation options on the right hand side of the website. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can leave an entry on this episode's show notes on the webpage or on YouTube, or you can send me an email. All my contact information can be found on the Brains Matter website. The theme music Soul of the Machine was composed and performed by Clive Weeks and is used with his permission. I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye for now.